I'm Jennifer Isabella. And I'm Keith Johnston. Your co-host for Forrester's podcast, What It Means, where we explore the latest market dynamics impacting executives and their customers. Today, we're joined by Vice President and Principal Analyst J.P. Gounder and Principal Analyst Michael O'Grady to discuss the impact of generative AI on jobs in the U.S. Welcome both. Thanks for having me. Good to be here. Guys, we do a lot of forecasts on jobs. Uh, we look at all angles, all markets, all kinds of things, but uh, Gen AI has come on the scene. So you guys embarked in this research to really look at how generative AI is affecting jobs or will between now and 2030. Just to kick it off, like talk to us about like what's the what's the real worry here? You know, everybody seems to panic and and what's unique about generative AI that made this research so interesting? Well, one thing that's very stark about generative AI is that any, anybody can see the magic of what it does, right? And we have said in our research that generative AI injects both magic, but also some mayhem that we can get into, into the future of work. And it's very tangible. You know, you ask Uh, something like ChatGPT to write a 600-word essay on a topic that you've chosen using its knowledge, and it will do it for you. And that sort of gets people a little bit more nervous, perhaps, than we've had, you know, a decade or more of AI in business. But a lot of it has been behind the scenes. It's been predictive analytics. It's been machine learning, and it's been uh, computer vision. Everyone Everyone saw what ChatGPT could do. And if you could write an essay as part of your work or a memo, um, you probably thought to yourself, could this take my job? Michael, talk to us about the ingredients of this forecast, because you know, technological unemployment, it's not new. It's constantly evolving. Um, you have a couple of models that you track. What is What are the ingredients and then what perhaps is unique to this to get to this forecast for Generate AI's impact on jobs? Yeah, so this is a really good question. Uh, The main thing is it allows us to map jobs lost or potential jobs lost to a particular technology. So if you look at what we've done, we've come up with uh, the notion of generative AI is going to take this many jobs based on an understanding of the goodness of generative AI. So um, that's the main thing. Before we were making these forecasts based on lots of different data sources, but this is the first time we can actually assess how the technology will change by industry or by occupation. Um, We know, for example, when we look at uh, the impact of generative AI, that it tends to impact the the higher earners, the more educated, because it's things like reading, writing, comprehension, the things that a lot of people who leave school tend to do. So, so that's the thing that changes, and, and we can we can leverage that to understand how the share of jobs. So going back to our previous forecast, we had about five percent of jobs will be lost to automation by 2030. This now gives us that share um, that will be lost to generative AI, and and we're saying about a third of those, or 30 percent of those, will be lost to generative AI. So it helps fill a gap that was in our previous model and helps also to to double down on the industries and the occupations that have been most impacted. Can we talk about, before we get into like the details of the forecast, the sentiment around generative AI and workers and how, how they're feeling about the technology? Because to your point, JP, everyone 
can now see it and see what it can do and the opportunities for it. But I'm sure there's that mayhem piece too, that people are concerned about. Yeah. Well, you know, it's funny because we've used two methodologies to gauge the fears of job loss. One of them is we ask people in our surveys, you know, are you afraid that someone you know will lose their job? And then we ask them, are you afraid you will lose your job? And people are consistently more concerned about other people losing their jobs and less concerned about losing their own jobs. And perhaps that's natural because you know all of the components that go into your own job and you think, well, I could use something like generative AI to help me, but I don't see being replaced. The ultimate result, though, for people when we ask them about their own jobs is that 36% of global workers who are employed fear losing their jobs to automation or AI in the next 10 years. That's not an insignificant number of people. So there's already a built-in sense that uh, people think that their jobs may go away. Now, there's also on social media, you can find TikToks and Instagram posts about people who claim to have lost their job to ChatGPT. In some cases, that might actually not be what happened, um, but it is an interesting thing that you, you start to hear more of these stories. So th there's gonna be immediate um, concern when you bring these tools in. You can manage against that because in reality, as Michael's wonderful forecast shows, the number of jobs that are actually lost is far lower than what people fear. Let's tap into that a little bit, JP or, or Michael because there was automation suggests that you're replacing rote tasks or jobs that just can be replaced by machines very easily. But all this buzz around open AI to Jen's point, something that you could see has created new fears. And because it feels like you can try it out by yourself. You can see what it's doing. It, it's almost, it's, it's to your point about the magic and mayhem. It's, there's there's something truly happening. I'm conversing with the AI. What is different here? And because I'd like to get to Michael's like, well, how do you calculate the spike on the jobs? Because like this thing seemed to happen overnight, this open AI thing. Well, I, I suppose. So this is a really good point, Keith, is we've got to keep objective in all of this lot, right? It's very easy to sort of get a little bit out of hand and say, wow, this is going to change. But what we've done is we've not changed our forecast for job losses. Um, to automation. All we've done is we've attributed some of that to generative AI. Now, the framework that we've used is based on ONET, the ONET database in the US, which deals with about 900 jobs. And, that, and each job is assigned a knowledge, a skill, and an ability. Uh, so all we've done is we said, right, what is the knowledge, skill, and ability of a large language model? Oh, so we can say it's very good at writing, it's very good at mathematical reasoning. It's very good at memorization. It's good at active listening, et cetera. So we came up with a set of criteria that describes today's technology. And then what we did is we looked at the overlap between that description of a job and all the 900 jobs in the US. And that overlap we call large language model influence. So this is an objective framework, but what we've got to understand is influence doesn't mean job losses. It means that you, your job could be augmented or improved, or your productivity could be uh, improved through using these tools. It could also mean your job is transformed or lost. Um, so this is the, the, this is the framework that we used, and we cross-checked it in a number of different ways. 
Now, it, it, one of those interesting things that I find is if you look at the Bureau of Labor Statistics, which is still for me a reference point since they track jobs regularly every year and they give forecasts every year, they're still predicting more people would be in, working in 10 years time than there are today. So they're not they're not saying that there's going to be masses of job losses. That does not mean that jobs won't be transformed, however, that jobs won't be influenced. So that's the thing that we've been able to, to look at. And the other thing, going back to what I previously said, is we can now do that mapping by industry and by occupation. Um, so, for example, professional and scientific services, which might include IT services, uh, um, they will be impacted uh, they're one of the big things that will be impacted. In fact, certain number of, of, of professions will have more than half of the jobs lost to automation will be accounted for by generative AI. Um, and the law profession is one of those, right? So what we're able to do is we're able to understand the industries that potentially could be impacted. And I say potentially because it still depends on the tools working. It still depends on copyright issues being sorted out. Um, and hallucinations being controlled. Uh, so there's still lots of things that need to be um, understood. But what we're saying is we are assuming all of that will eventually get sorted out. And so that's why we're coming up with a certain share of jobs that will be lost to, to large language models. And it's about 1.5% of the workforce. So of the 5% that will be lost, about 1.5% of that will be attributed to large language models. So, so just less than a third. Right. And this is because uh, when speaking with, with, with JP, um, you know, these models, they, they help augment roles, they help improve productivity. They're not just there to suppress roles. There will be some roles that will be suppressed, uh, for sure. Um, so when we look at the, the jobs that are most impacted, we've got writers and, and authors, we've got editors, we've got computer programmers. Uh, we've got technical writers, so technical writers have a large automation potential and a large language, language model influence. So they're the ones that will probably be more impacted than most. Uh, so we can, we've got this gauge uh, that looks at automation potential and now looks at a secondary axis, which is what we added to our model, which is large language model influence. And so from that, we can see which quadrant people are in. And, and therefore, we can see which jobs are more likely to change in that transformation. So it's an objective framework, I think, that brings in lots of third-party sources. Uh, and I think it really builds on, on our previous models. There's a fascinating tension here because I think I heard you say that we haven't even hit maximum employment. You know, that there's actually going to be more jobs available. Yet there's just going to be this crazy transformation of what kind of work gets done. On top of that, you have a lot of CEOs out there saying you got to move fast on this thing. You got to go. They're being very provocative in their statements. Like, what's going to break first? Is it really the fear of jobs, or you know, what's really going to go on with these these jobs? Is is the potential really out there for generative AI? So I think that um, the potential is there as. Michael referenced before the people who are most influenced by generative AI, the people whose jobs are most influenced are people in higher education uh, cohorts. So people with bachelors, masters, even doctorates, um, there's more influence potential because the tasks that they do every day are things that large language models are good at helping with. So are all those college educations useless now? 
No, <laughs> they're not. I mean, they, there's going to be a change. Let me tell you a quick story. When I was a child in 1970s, my dad was a budget director. And when he would come home from work, uh, he would say, you know, I would say, well, what did you do at work today, daddy? And he'd say, well, I was calculating the budget. And what he meant by that was that he had a number two pencil and a calculator, and he was calculating the entire budget for, it turned out, you know, the District of Columbia Mental Health Department. Okay. So Matt, now you go 50 years ahead and you have the title of budget director. You're not using a number two pencil and you're not using a calculator. You're using, uh, you know, successive waves of things from VisiCalc to Excel to now, you know, very professionalized software as a service financial software. So what we're adding to that is a new dimension, and that is the ability to query and talk to that software and be able to get answers out of that software. So this is what Salesforce is doing with Einstein. You have all this data about, you know, who you should be targeting with your sales. And, you know, it used to be you had to go and do all these things to get that data. Now you can say, hey, Einstein, who's my best prospect? Who should I be spending time on? So it's cutting out a lot of stuff that maybe people uh, weren't being particularly effective on. It's not core to their job to figure out how to use Salesforce. What is core to their job is sales. Yeah, and, and, and I would build on that. You know, when we look at the modeling work, what we do find, we talked about education, uh, but um, jobs that are less likely to be impacted by um, these large language models from the modeling that we've done are things like apprenticeships, right? So anyone who's got, who, who, wor who um, works and learns on the trade, on the job, tends to be a little bit more protected as is um, professional level certification. So when we look at some of these things, uh, we can see um, that not all jobs are impacted and some jobs are slightly more protected than others. The other thing I would say is that um, jobs will evolve. Certainly that's what we're seeing is so jobs uh, like JP was saying, they, they, they will change how you do something, but you might get a similar type of output. Um, but there are certain things that help to protect you uh, from the impact of, of, of generative AI. And when we, when we do some modeling work, uh, we find that if you, if you work in innovation, if you're doing lots of innovation um, um, and creativity and originality, those things are not apt for large language models, at least not today. And so there are certain things that if you do more of, so if you, if you orient your job a little bit more towards one thing compared to another, then you can um, learn to, to, to provide extra value. Despite having all of these tools, you can still add a lot of value. So in other words, jobs will change um, and certain jobs will be more protected than others. So that, that's what the modeling work tended to show as well. In your research, you talk about jobs being affected versus influenced. And so is that the, the strongest lever then? Yeah, so that's a really good point, right? So going back to the numbers, I don't like going too much in numbers, but if you, our previous forecast said about 5% of jobs would be lost to automation. What we're actually saying is that 7% of jobs will be influenced by generative AI and just 1.5% will be lost. So in other words, there'll be so many more jobs influenced than will be lost, right? And this goes back to, you know, augmentation of roles rather than suppression of roles. So I do think it's important to, to, to say, how do I use these tools in my role? And, and to be clear, based on the modeling work that we've done, if you're doing anything written, 
if you're doing any mathematical, memorization, writing, speaking, science, critical thinking, you're probably going to find these tools very useful, right? So if you just ignore them, then that's not a good idea. Um, um, so, so it's trying to find that, um, that, that, that use of the tool that will allow you to be more productive and also to change the outputs that you do so that you can uh, add more value to your clients. So that's uh, what we're seeing. Um, and, and again, uh, going back just to the numbers, only about 25% of jobs influenced at the moment um, will be lost and 75% will be augmented through the tool. Is it possible, maybe JP, you have a perfect example of this, of like give a real life example of what we mean by influencing the work versus obviously everyone knows what replacing a job means, but just a little bit more texture or color commentary on that would be helpful. When uh, certain roles and certain jobs bring in generative AI, it changes the workflow of how they spend their time. If you were to do an employee journey map of all the little steps they take during the day, there would be moments that would be compressed. So think of it rather than replacing a job, maybe it's replacing a task or shortening that task or making that task easier to do. Uh, and so, you know, that can be transformative in some cases. And where we where we measure influence, the bar is high. It is something that is pretty core to their job. There's some interesting stuff going on in the area of um, visualization. So let's say you're in advertising and you're creating uh, a creative campaign. And in the past, maybe you would have mocked up four to six you know, options for the client. Well, now you can use generative AI to actually mock up a hundred choices. And maybe you start looking through what the framing of that ad might look like. Uh, and it doesn't, it's not something that you use as your end product, but it helps you in that process to become, uh, to have more latitude, to have more options, to do it quick, more quickly, uh, that sort of thing. So let's go down that thread a little bit, JP. Um, creativity seems to be the thing that is threatened most, and creativity can be loose, but We've seen some very tangible things. Um, screenwriters, um, just content creators in general are, you know, generally feel threatened about this idea. So touch on creativity and what it may mean for creative industries in general. So the hope is, and there will be those who overstep the bounds and who go too far with how they use these tools. The hope is that these things can in fact help you to be more efficient and effective and aid your creativity, but not replace human creativity. One of the things about generative AI is it's building off of these large corpuses of data, could be text, could be visual, could be video, of things that already exist. And this is where things can get a little bit sticky because if you relied completely on what already exists, well, you'd never create anything truly net new. I mean, it would just be a remix of things that already existed. So if you've ever seen generative AI uh, images, I don't know if we should call it art. Maybe it's more like a craft done by machine. Um, you know, it's, it's taking inspiration and literally learning all of its images from uh, human artists. So there's a limit to what you can do here. Amazon's um, Kindle bookstore is probably filling up right now with books that were written by generative AI. My belief is that 
in the medium term, people are going to start to suss that out. And they're going to realize that when you're reading, you're not just reading to get information, you're reading to get the artistry of how it was written, to get true insights, to get creativity. There's far more to writing than um, just pumping out text that seems to make sense. So in the best cases where people have perspective on how to use these tools, um, you may use them to do some research or to mock up some ideas, but ultimately it's going to be the human who's going to take that and, and turn it into something creative. So clear point to make is that if it's not created by a human, then it can't be copyrighted. So in this particular case, um, we really need to work hard to augment these kind of jobs, don't we? Because you can't copyright if the machine's making it. I think there'll be a lot of uh, jurisprudence that goes down around this, right? Because some of the existing um, case law and you know how the, they look at this, it's just not up to date. Um, one thing that I will say is even just coming up with generative AI outputs as part of your process opens you up to copyright issues in various uh, countries and that sort of thing. This is why Adobe with their Firefly, which is a way of creating um, and remixing things in Photoshop and doing generative right in there, they use a set of images to train their model, all of which are Adobe stock. And that means they've already purchased rights to those images, and there is some remuneration to the artists who created them, the human artists who created them, which allows you to then use those images under the Adobe license in a way that makes sense. But yes, ultimately, I think um, as society gets used to what's going on here, there are going to be some new decisions that need to be made. Um, but I think at the end of the day, humanity will win out. Michael, just listening to all this, I'm hearing a lot of different levers. Industries will shrink, industries will go, education systems must change as a result of generative AI. How are you going to incorporate any of this to keep track of the forecast? Like what, are new parameters gonna come about every month that you're gonna try and, and put into this model? So there are mainly two parameters that we've got in the model, which which drives everything, which is automation potential, which was from Frey and Osborne, 2013, Oxford University, which gives you an idea of the amount of each job that can be automated based on expert view. And then we've got this large language model influence. And so we can see which quadrant a job might be in, and then we can see the impact that a large language model might have. So that's the, that's the basic um, that's the basic model, and obviously, we, because we're modeling all 900 roles, um, we can break that down by industry and by occupation. So, but we also need to be aware of the trends that are happening within the AI industry. So, at the same time as we created this forecast, we also created the generative AI forecast, um, which broke down AI spend and generative AI spend and which verticals we're going to be most impacted. And so there's a synergy between this forecast and that generative AI forecast. So one of the things that we're going to be looking out for, for example, in the, in the generative AI forecast, we, 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 we saw that uh, about two thirds of the spend um, on generative AI would be on specialized verticals. So not general um, conversational agents, but um, 
use of large language models in specific domains, which might be legal uh, domains, or it might be office domains. Um, it could be in life sciences or mathematical modeling or computer science, right? So one thing that we do is we look at the tools that are available, um, what their sales might be, how many jobs potentially could be impacted, and we make sure that the, the view that we've got using our two-parameter model is consistent with all of those verticals. And at the moment, they do seem reasonably consistent. So I think it's important to realize that what industries are doing is they are specializing their, their large language models to their own particular industry so that they can have confidence at deploying it, that it doesn't suffer um, any, any effects from getting things wrong, uh, that it's precise. Um, and uh, that's what we're seeing uh, from a lot of the industries and a lot of the companies. And we looked at about 200 companies uh, and we classified the companies by vertical and we looked at where their revenues were coming from and the growth rates. So to answer your question, Keith, it's a really good question, but I do believe in simplicity. After all of that, I think that we should keep a simplistic framework, but we should cross-check the results of it by industry and by occupation by looking at the software that exists in all of the domains um, and make sure um, that if a particular domain is forecasted to have a big impact, then we would expect to see a software product or many software products in that area um, to be sold and to see significant growth. So that's what we're going to be doing next year and the year after is tracking that. But I think ultimately that, that the approach we've taken using ONET and skills, knowledge and abilities and, and equating that to a large language model, I think that's a really solid approach that works really well. And it certainly allows us to get the gut feel that experts feel in terms of the industries that are impacted in terms of the profile of job uh, by education, um, but by salary, how they're being impacted. So I do think we've got a solid foundation. It's just that we need to constantly keep checking to make sure that there's no new thing that's happening that we haven't taken on board. So tons of investment have gone into this technology in a very short period of time. Like many things, there's winners and losers. Uh, is there a couple of companies that are really going to drive the technology, hence then drive the jobs market with this technology? Yeah, I think um, when we come down to this, there are a lot of open source large language models. There are a lot of uh, competitors to OpenAI. The question becomes, what's their route to actually reach employees? Um, which is why companies like Microsoft and Google, who are introducing generative AI right into the programs that we already use, like Microsoft Word or PowerPoint, this would be the Microsoft 365 Copilot. Google does something similar with Duet. Salesforce Einstein does it with CRM. So there's going to be this element of reaching people, um, reaching employees through the applications that they already use, but making them better. And that is the key, right? So some of the early results from uh, Microsoft 365 Copilot show that um, there are testimonials from early customers saying that maybe employees are saving 15 to 30 minutes a day, which could be five to 10 hours a month. And that's because um, 
when you start using this copilot, you can ask it to draft up an email based on a document. Hey, I have this document. Could you summarize it for me into an email that I'm going to send out to the team? Now, critically, the human being who uses that tool needs to go through and, and evaluate and read and edit and vet that uh, output by Copilot. But the idea is that it's created a draft that you can use. Um, you know, there are many, many things you can do with Copilot. You can ask it to write a document, maybe based off of, you know, a manual. You have a 500 uh, page standard operating procedures manual. Hey, write me a, a five page summary of this uh, standard operating procedures. Okay, I get that. Hey, make me a five uh, slide PowerPoint off of your summary and bring in images from our library to demonstrate the concepts. It can do things like that already pretty effectively. All of this requires that people pay attention, however. You're not just seeding off these tasks to uh, Microsoft Copilot or Google Duet or anyone else. You're, you're actively involved in the, the process of creation, but it can save you time and it can get you started. So maybe both of you can offer us a little bit of prediction, even though we came out of prediction season just now, like 12 months from now, if we do this podcast again, with as much as going on, is as fast as it's going, and as much investment is being plowed into this technology, what's your big call 12 months from now? Where are we going to be? One of the things we're going to see is that this technology needs to genuinely solve business problems. That sounds boring and not big, um, but some of the big ideas collide with that. So let's take an example, something that our colleague Rowan Kern and I uh, published in a report that we predict that in a couple of years, when you join a new organization and a new job, you'll be able to have a conversation with a virtual sort of replica, if you will, of the person who did your job before, your, your predecessor. Because companies will take all the emails that your predecessor ever sent when they were in that job, uh, they will have recorded some of the meetings that that person participated in, any kind of documents that person created, feed them into a large language model and say, this is your predecessor. And you can query it. You can have conversations. How would you have done this? That feels almost like science fiction, but it also solves a really important problem for organizations, and that is about onboarding, training, and subject matter expertise. So when you add the, the, the really unbelievably future-looking stuff to solving a real problem, which is very costly in training and onboarding, uh, you're going to find some really interesting, interesting problems getting solved. Michael, is your forecast going to be right or wrong 12 months from now? Let's look at some invariants. The BLS is saying job growth. Uh, we know there's been a lot invested in there, so people are grabbing it and running with it. Then those two are not incompatible, right? It just means that generative AI is going to be more a part of the workplace. And one of the things that we're probably going to see is that um, if you've got a high-performing culture, and maybe you've got some people in your organization that have got maybe a, a skills gap, well, these tools will be really good and it'll bring everyone, it sort of democratizes the, the technology to, to, so that everyone can have it and, and, and so it pushes everyone higher, right? So if you've got a big skills gap between the worst performer and the best performer, this thing is going to squash all of that, which is going to be good for the company, right? So 
So I, I'm, I'm very much an optimist, right? But I'm also very pragmatic, right? The, 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 you've still got challenges around the deployment of this stuff, around the copyright, around um, things that will be sorted. And in our, in our modeling, we are allowing about two years before um, we start to see a more of a steady state deployment of large language models. And, and I don't see why that should change. People are preparing for it um, and we are preparing as well and it's all there in our model we've we spent a lot of time debating it and thinking through it um, and, and so i definitely don't want to be changing it this is a great conversation i appreciate you both look forward to uh delving into this forecast 12 months from now to see if we are right or wrong thanks for having us yeah thank you i look forward to it too thank you both if you like what you heard today, subscribe to Forrester's What It Means podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or your favorite podcast player. To continue the conversation, follow Forrester on Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn, or drop us a note at podcast at Thanks for listening.